coming. What time's the seven o'clock meeting start? Seven o'clock. Seven o two. I got seven o'clock even right up here in the sat time. So welcome to the online audience. Uh, welcome to everyone to New Freedom, Position of Neutrality. Uh, is there anyone in the room tonight who's never been to a position of neutrality before? Very good. First of all, welcome. And second, let us warn you in advance, what we do here is perhaps a little different than what you've experienced in other fellowships. And the main reason that you're liable to have a different experience with it is we intend for you to have a different experience with it. So what we do, we've been doing for lots of years. We've been taking a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week directly out of this book. And we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? Yeah, the process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. So what we do here, although it may look like I'm telling you what the book says, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show you how I find my experience in it and encourage you to have your experience with it. I don't want you letting me read this book for you because then you're giving me the power to think for you. That would, that would not be good. So, but I, I'm going to show you how I find my experience, and if you relate to it, we'll share our spiritual experience in here tonight, because that's the whole point. We would teach you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration. And you may wonder why me knowing that you're having an experience and sharing with you that I know indicates this power we call God, but we have to take some things on faith, and one of the things the authors declare is there is one who has all power, that one is so if you're feeling something and I know, then did we not demonstrate oneness? Right? So this is a process of coming to believe in something tangible. Okay? So tonight we're in 12, so we're liable to experience some highs and some lows, but we definitely will have some experiences, right? And we're in chapter 7 of your book, if you're reading along. And it's a chapter entitled Working with Others. And they start out with promises and conditions. See if you can identify some of the promises and conditions. It says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. Did any of you identify some promises there? Other activities will fail. Uh, he went right to the, right the buzzkill, didn't he? So... Intensive work with others ensures immunity. Would that be a good idea? How many of you have found yourself high when you didn't really intend for that to be the outcome? So some insurance of immunity might be a good thing in light of some of our lived experiences. To Sean's point, the authors indicate this is the first 100, their experience with the first several thousand that says their testimony, other activities fail. What other activities? Meetings, calling sponsors, although that is intensive work with others. So it would depend on how intensive you were working. Right? Um, all the things we hear in fellowship, in lieu of sitting down one with another, have a tendency to fail. That is, that is the, the juice, the peer model, which many of you that are in here know that we're based on a peer model, right? You want to get well? Think of how to help your brother or sister. Okay? All right, so it says it works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. So the first part they gave us is not the 12th suggestion because this is the English language. The, this 12th suggestion follows now. We read that. That's the selfish reason I might want to do this to get an, ensure immunity and other activities are going to fail. And if you remember from the first step, at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where, anyway, he goes on to say that he cannot bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. He's without defense. So that's going to happen if you're alcoholic at some point. And so I might want immunity, and I don't know when I'm going to need it. So I might just want to stick out my hand and work with something. Okay. So, but that's the selfish reason. Now I'm going to be looking at the unselfish reason. Carry this message to other alcoholics. How does one carry a message? 
I'm going to have to become a better man in order to carry this message because it's a message of redemption. It's, it's a message of being made new. Yeah? Okay? You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Life will take on new meaning. Catch the promise there? How many of you discovered that? You don't have to be here very long. Life better take on new meaning than, than what, right? Okay. okay, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you'll not want to miss it. I always like to call to people's attention. They say the words they mean, and they mean the words they say. They told you about what you would see, but then they called it an experience, not a sight. How many of you have grown in the spirit enough to know that the host that grows up around us is we know them by their spirit? So if I limited it to sight, I would miss the entirety of the experience, wouldn't I? Okay. So frequent, that's why I'd want to wake up. You understand, they're laying the case for why this was written by a stock analyst that was selling you. He was a famous atheist. Then he sort of went agnostic. And then he said, it makes it more logical to believe than not to believe. Let me lay out the evidence. And now we're in 12, and he's laying out the foundation for why I would come to believe. Because I want the full experience. I don't just want to see it. I don't want to see the movie. I want to live the freaking movie. Okay. All right, so perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. Why are you laughing? How many of you have been a drinker who didn't want to recover? How many of you went to a fellowship where they told you they don't recover? We don't recover here. I'm just telling you. So they're just questioning what we're doing. I came here many times, and I thought I wanted to recover but I didn't get insurance. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And guess what happened? I proved the first step. I could not bring to consciousness with sufficient force. Anyway, you can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. They'll be only too glad to assist you. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. What's that look like? Well, it didn't work when they tried it, but think about it from the other person's perspective. When you were still drinking and using, how much preaching did you want to endure? See, this is no longer about me. Self was the problem. I got to think how you, I would like to be approached if the roles were reversed. So this kind of behavior, if it was offensive to me in my cups, then it's, why would I replicate that, right? That didn't mean I didn't experience it, but that experience was to benefit the people I was being prepared to meet. Okay? All right, so unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. You'll be handicapped if you arouse it. So clearly, they aroused it, and they, they're just warning us, right? Ministers and doctors are competent, and you can learn much from them if you wish, but it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. Why? How many of you got out there in your addiction and you just behaved incomprehensibly, <laughs> even to you, and people were demanding an explanation you did not have? And then you made shit up because they seemed so insistent. <laughs> but if we know who we are, armed with the facts about, I know you don't fucking know. And then we level the playing field, right? Now we can talk. All right. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about them. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. So who's the persuader? Alcohol, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl. Anything can add to the list. Much more persuasive forces. Do not try and compete with fentanyl. <laughs> You'll lose. And the reason they learned that, you may spoil a later opportunity. When they're ready, they're ready. Right? 
it's sometimes disturbing to watch people's preparation. It was disturbing to watch mine. This advice is given for his family also. They should be patient realizing they're dealing with a sick person. If there's any indication he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious leanings. See, I was always, before I started going, just meeting you at the fellowship and telling you who your sponsor was, I was supposed to go find out something about you so I could meditate on how I would like to be approached if the roles were reversed. Because if I come at you from a religious lane and you reject a religious lane, you're not going to hear anything I say. And if I come at you from a 12-step lane with 12-step language and I come from the religious side of the equation, you're not going to hear anything I say then because of your prejudice there. And the cultures are talking about the same power and the same re restoration we're both trying to introduce people to, but because of language, we can't hear each other. So don't be that guy. Get prepared. Right? That's what they're telling us. All right, so I want to go over to page 91 in the middle of the page because most of the time we meet people in meetings and what have you, or we start going to treatment centers and what have you, but we meet them already identifying in some way, and so this is more applicable. So it says, see your man alone if possible. So how many of you have been blessed with a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps and is endeavoring to work with others? Percentage of you, how many of you have thought about asking someone to help you through your step experience? A few more? Okay, so the minute you humble yourself to ask someone for help, you're already in step 12. You'll help them more than they help you. So it's a good idea if you're even considering it to consider with your feet, right? So at first engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. So what would general conversation look like? Haven't seen you here before. You new to the area? Right? I mean, we make assumptions, don't we? Does it help? Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. Are you armed with the facts about yourself that you can talk without going into Alcoholics Anonymous about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences? Right? Something innocuous. Like, dude, when I, I drank, I just always overshot the mark. And, you know, other people would go out and have a good time, and I'd go to jail. Or whatever, right? Um, if he wishes to talk, let him do so. You'll thus get a better idea how you ought to proceed. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit, but say nothing from the moment of how that was accomplished. So that's where a lot of us get spooked because we get here and we're, we're just feeling judged and then someone tries to engage us and so we shut down and it's really a desperate cry for help. It's not a getaway. It's really more of a getaway closer. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Don't talk to me. But ask me another question. <laughs> now, any of you relate to what that is? So don't, don't, you're, remember you're awakened now. Use the spirit, not just your eyes. Check it. What's going on? They're carrying a burden. Speak to the burden. Okay. All right, say nothing for the moment how that was accomplished. Why not? Any of you ever figured that away? How many of you know how your sobriety was accomplished? Do you guys know what we're talking about? Any, of you, any real alcoholics or real addicts around here? I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about weekenders. I mean, burn the fucking house down. Okay. Okay. So, like, no matter what, I'm not stopping, right? And then one day, I'm stopped. I have no idea how that was accomplished, correct? It just happened. Okay, so when I tell them, I can't tell them about how, I've got to tell them about who. And they may not be ready to hear about who yet. Does that make sense? Okay. So, 
And if he's in a serious mood, dwell on, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. So has liquor caused you troubles? Can you talk about it without judgment? Because that's what the step experience allows us to do, is talk about ourselves and other people going through an addictive disorder without judgment. Right? If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your escapades and get him to tell some of his. How many of you got humorous stories of your escapades? Of course we do, because if it was all not fun, we wouldn't have stayed at it so damn hard. Right? When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were and how you finally learned that you were sick. So how did you finally learn that you were sick and how many of you are still learning about that? How'd you guys learn that you were sick? Did you believe them? How many of you were told that alcoholic drinking, alcoholism, addictive disorder was indeed a mental illness and if you were seriously afflicted, it's not a chance that you will get well on your own? How many of you were told that? How many of you said, oh, pishaw? <laughs> I will just go forth and not pick up, no matter what. Any of, you, any of you fall victim to that? Did you find that you were wrong? Okay, well then we should read the rest of the book. Okay. So give him an account of the struggles you made to stop and show him the mental twist which leads to the drink, first drink of the spree. The reason I wanted you thinking about that Look at the struggles you made to stop. And then what's that twist that leads to the first drink of a spree? Sometimes we think it'll be different. Sometimes we don't give a shit if it's different, right? I mean, that's the one thing a lot of people are doing the same thing, expecting a different result. That may apply to some regular people. It doesn't apply to the alcoholics. I did the same thing with no expectation of a different result. This is going to suck. Bring a camera. Um, <laughs> Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we've done it on the chapter on alcoholism. They say if he's alcoholic, he'll understand you at once. He'll match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. So here's what we're going to do. Got full, full disclosure. We're going to do some self-diagnosis. And you might catch alcoholism. So, so we're going to look in chapter 3. They talked about... Jim, the car guy, that's a good example. Jim didn't do any drinking until he was middle-aged. He had a business. He owned a car dealership. And he lost the business due to his drinking, and then he encountered some AAs. And they got him sort of on his feet, and he went back to the dealership as an employee that he had once owned. And on his way to said dealership, the book records he was a little agitated. Can you relate to going to a job you feel diminished in and being just a little agitated? So Jim went to the dealer in this state of agitation. When he got there, he had a few words with the boss. Nothing serious. Yeah. So then he decides that although he is at the car dealership where people come to buy cars, he's going to go out in the woods looking for people who want to buy cars. Now you think that's silly, but how many of you were doing okay and then you just went to the trap house just to show the fellows how good you were doing? I'll do a little 12-stepping over there. Anyway, on the way to these woods where the car buyers are that don't come to the dealership, he drives by a roadside place. And he's eaten there many times, so he knows it's safe. They have a bar, but he doesn't pick up no matter what. And he goes into the bar, and he has a sandwich and a glass of milk. And then suddenly the thought crosses his mind that a shot of whiskey in a glass of milk would not hurt me on a full stomach. So he ordered another sandwich and a shot and a glass of milk, and he poured the shot in the glass of milk, and he drank it, and the experiment worked so well that he had another. And another and then another trip to the asylum for Jim. Any of you relate to any of that? Do you notice how the sandwich went away after the first couple of experiments? Any of you relate to that? 
they had a, a story about Fred, perfectly normal in every respect, a good sound businessman, but a little nervous nature. And he ended up in a hospital for a nervous condition, and the doctor suspected there was a little more. Any of you end up in a hospital for a nervous condition, and the physicians thought somebody else ought to talk to you? Come on. When the social worker comes in, and you thought you were there for, yeah, that's what they're doing. Anyway, so the AAs talked to him, and he says, thank you very much. I think I get your point. I never took it as far as you guys. I got this shit. And he left, and things went well until sometime in the future. He's in New York on a business trip. Everything went great. Not a cloud on the horizon, he recounts. And he walked into a bar room and thought a highball with dinner would be great. And he came to, came to three days later in a cab. Anyone relate to that? And then they talk about a jaywalker. Any of you relate? That seems like a silly story unless you're a drunk or an addict. Oh, this is going to kill me. Let's see how creative we can be. Okay, so if you related to any of that, congratulations, you just caught alcoholism. And, and that's what we're doing. We're fishing with their stories, right? Okay. So if you're satisfied that he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. So how would I be satisfied? 23, they talk about the real alcoholic as he differentiates from the hard drinker or the moderate drinker, right? Yeah, I mean, really, the one symptom is do they... Once they put it in their body, do they experience the phenomenon of craving? How many of you have, have had the, any drinkers in here? Okay. Have you had the experience of drinking and feeling energized by, see, see that's a sedative. So that's an abnormal reaction to a sedative. And that's what the doctor's talking about when he says allergy. We have an abnormal reaction to, right? Because he didn't really know what else to call it. So he said, it may be the manifestation. But where's my opiate addicts? You guys are the classic example, right? When you're high, people think you're good. You're up doing your chores. And <laughs> when you're out, they're like, oh, he's, look at him. Right? Completely opposite. A powerful sedative. But we're out sweeping the driveway. Uh -oh. So if you're satisfied that he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. So the hopeless feature of the malady is the condition you have is both bodily, body and mind. And, and if we don't empower the spirit, you will not overcome by our experience, right? Um, show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding the first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. So you, if you've done your steps, you'll know what that is. Right? You always analyze the last relapse, probably, if you're working with someone that knows how to help you. But if you can analyze what happened, or if you just analyze a series of what happened. How many of you had some clean time and then went off? How many of you have analyzed what happened leading up to it? So you know the queer mental twist that led, right? And, and maybe that twist took place two days before. You were already running around restless, irritable, discontent. Yes? Because the doctor warned us they'll be restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience that sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. Right? Okay. So don't at this stage refer to this book unless he's seen it and wishes to discuss it and be careful not to brand him an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him possibly he can, if he's not too alcoholic. So some people think we're throwing them under the bus, but no one wants to be told they're not alcoholic enough. I promise you. If you tell them, you, nah, I've done it to guys. I had a guy that got sober on Christmas Eve. I go, you can't possibly be a real alcoholic. You should have made it at least to New Year's, you wuss. And then we did the steps. Because possibly he could if he's not too alcoholic, right? But insists that if he's severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. Who knows that better than us? How many of you tried every method you knew? 
How many of you had people that you dearly loved said, if you love me, you'd stop? And you loved them. Didn't stop. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. See, guys, if we won't talk to them about the illness of mind and body, they don't believe the doctor and they don't believe anyone else, but we are people redeemed from that condition. We're the only ones that can talk to them about it, and we don't want to. Why did I go through the trouble of getting properly armed with the fact? I know it's an illness. When I see you acting out, that's an addict. Right? But we don't want to say it either. It's a disease. You ain't going to not pick up no matter what. Try that with diarrhea. Stand back and tell me how that works. Don't crap no matter what, Sean. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it'll serve some good purpose, but you may talk to them about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. Here's where we miss it, guys. What solution do we offer? We offer an introduction to the power that restores, period. And then we have guidance through a process that will reveal that power to them through them. That's why I can talk to you of hopelessness, because I can introduce you to your only source of hope. One. Right? Says that you will soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, the traits of an alcoholic. If his own doctor is willing to tell him that he's alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he's become very curious to know how you got well. Have you ever had that happen to you? It's like, this dude was a wreck. <laughs> Come on, give me the deets, man. Try. Okay. So let him ask you that question if he will. And then they get precise. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Because I'm not going to tell him how it was accomplished. Because I didn't accomplish it. I only know who accomplished it. But I can tell him exactly what the experience was. I drank every day, no matter what. I also was duly addicted in many other chemicals. I got, went into comas for weeks at a time, got up, got rehab, went out and got high again. I did not stop unless I was chained up or locked up. Did not stop, and then one day, pow, it never happened again. What did I have to do with that? Absolutely nothing. But... I do know because of this process and some very loving people who accomplished it because they introduced me to the power that restores. And they told me exactly, they helped me see the truth. Okay. So it says, stress the spiritual feature freely. If the man be agnostic or atheist, make it emphatic he does not have to agree with your conception of God. That's also in italics. Why does he not need to agree? Because none of us can fully define or comprehend that power which is God. And everyone's conception is inadequate. And God's not a conception. God's a reality. Does that make sense? Okay. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. So we're going to meet them where they are because God meets you where you are. But that's not where we leave you. We encourage you to walk with us. As he leads us. Yes? Okay. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. So I would ask you if you're sitting in a room of recovery in any fellowship and you do not believe in a power greater than yourself, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, had to have been a power greater than you, you wouldn't have trucked in here. We'll start there. You've been worshiping at the pipe for a minute. It's clear. You've put your faith in something. You surrendered all to it. That's all we're going to do is get you going on a different trajectory. I don't know why we come to believe in an illness, and when I know it's an illness, I come to believe in a healer. Right? Okay.
So when dealing with such a person, you'd better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. Okay? So we can just talk about be kind. Love and tolerance, right? Okay? There's no use in arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. How many of you were injured by a church and certain words just freaked you out? How many of you have been injured by recovery people and certain words freak you out? See, we're not alone in that. Those cultures have, have for years, not knowingly, but they've, they've alienated people they were there to help. Okay? So don't raise such issues no, no matter how your, what your own convictions are. Your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he's going to wonder what you can add to anything he already knows. So if you start working with people that are overly religious, you're going to find that some of the, you know, the, the, the way we introduce can be offensive to people that are caught up in dogma. And I, I know I worked with a pastor years ago, and I don't even know how he got his pastoral standing because he, he could not understand how God was a community. I don't understand how, how you're, a, you know, you're in the body. I, I don't get it. And right then he reached over and he scratched his arm. And I said, how did you know to scratch your arm? <laughs> so why is it so hard to believe that God knows exactly what you need when you're part of his body? So you might want to ask God if you itch. You know what I mean? <laughs> but then he listened to me. Because we make it harder than it is on both sides of the equation. So um, I'm going to jump from there to 94. And it says, outline the program of action explaining how you made a self-appraisal. Now, how would I do that had I not made one? So that people say, oh, do I need to do the steps? I don't know whether you need to do the steps, but if you're going to take other people through it, you would have to. You won't have any credibility. Because you're not going to tell them what to do. You're going to tell them what you did and what you experienced as a result. And then if they want it, they'll follow you. Right? Okay. So how you straightened out your past. How do you straighten out your past? Started prosecuting amends. And then it says, and why you're now endeavoring to be helpful to him. And that, that is the big amends. The only reason I went through all the nine-step amends was to get fit enough to do the big amends, which is serve without judgment. I'm going to have to go in some dark places and talk to people who don't want to hear. I'm going to have to go to places who are not going to be friendly to my message, but I'm going to be sent there, and I'm going to have to speak to them, and I'm going to have to speak truth to them and not take it personally. Right? Okay. It's important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital role in your own recovery. Acknowledge the selfish reason why I'm here. This ensures immunity. But bigger than that, I follow God and he led me here. The God you don't believe in, he led me to you. And you don't have to believe. I believe that if he sent me to you, he gave me the power to carry this out. So dish it. If you don't think I believe that way, walk with me. Actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. Make it plain that he's under no obligation to you, that you hope only that he'll try and help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Why do I hope that for him or her? Because if you don't, you'll never get free. You'll never complete your house cleaning until you help someone else with your musty past. It'll change the meaning in your mind. For you more religious people, by the blood of the Lamb, his sacrifice, word of my testimony. Yeah? Okay. All right. Suggest how important it is that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. That's hard to do, isn't it? Because we don't believe it. But it's more blessed to give than, re than to receive. We've heard it for years. We've even lip-synced it. But we don't believe it until we act in it. Make it clear he's not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off, or he's helped you more than you've helped him. How many of you needed that reminder when you worked with someone for hours, and then they called it off? You're like, shit. Hope it works out for you. <laughs> but what did that guy show me? 
He showed me pride. He showed me ego. He showed me attached to an outcome I couldn't possibly produce. I couldn't produce it for me, and now I think I'm empowered to produce it for him. Any of you been victimized by that delusion? There is a power flowing through me, and I may be led to a healing, and they may be healed, and I may be an instrument of that healing, but the glove never gets credit for the surgery. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you've perhaps made a friend. Maybe you've disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He'll be more likely to follow your suggestions. How many of you remember those early days of desperation? It's like, man, just tell me where to be and what to do. I feel like shit, but let's do it anyway. Right? Because we've got to get busy right away. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all of the program. What's the program? The program's in the book, the fellowship's in the room. And we, we message that and then people get confused. The program's got nothing to do with how many meetings you make. The program has to do with spiritual disciplines, acknowledging the power that animates all, and then walking in guidance to that power consciously. Right? So. If they didn't follow all the program, would they be getting the best? No. So why would we allow them to cut their own dope? How many of you have cut your own dope? Thinking it was an economic thing. And then realized it was a bad plan. So spiritually, you're not seeking abstinence in 12-step recovery. You're seeking spiritual inebriation. Don't encourage people to cut their dope. Tell them the truth. We de dish straight truth here. They can take it or leave it alone. It was what Paul Fisher used to say, sponsor like the mailman. Just put it in the box and leave. You don't have to stay there for him to read it. Some of us stay there for him to read it. Do you still like me? I like you enough not to lie to you and watch you die in your addiction because no one told you the truth. In fact, I love you. That's why I'm giving you this truth at the risk you won't like me for doing it because I'm properly armed with the facts about myself. I know what I'm seeing, you're dying. I want to talk to the one in you that wants to live. Can you hear me? Okay, you talk to me. You that wants to die, you sit the fuck over there. Right? Okay, I'm gonna jump over to, let's see. What do I need to do next? Let's go to 96. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. How many of you have had some experience with not responding at once? How many, how many people didn't think you were going to make it? So we're terrible at those kind of odds, right? So we don't often respond at once. It may take some demonstrations. Remember, we carry this message. We don't say it. We live it out, right? Okay. So... Search out another alcoholic and try again. If you're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer, so they're giving you a hint of what good fishing looks like. If they're not accepting with eagerness what you have to offer, they're not ready. Yeah. That doesn't mean you don't talk to them, you don't show them, show them kindness, but that's not the one that's ready for a program experience. Yeah. So we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. How'd they find that out? They chased them. <laughs> If you leave such a person alone, he may soon have con become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. How many of you, once you discovered you could not recover by yourself, didn't need any further convincing? You just, just show me. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. Do we have the right to do that? So our egoic attachments to one can deny the many. So it isn't about not valuing the one, it's about being realistic about what my real obligation is to community. Does it make sense? Yeah. And you'll have to weigh it. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he'd continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. You know who they're talking about? They're talking about Bill Wilson. So all of us and the millions that have recovered since 
may have been deprived of that chance had he continued to chase the six down in the Bowery in New York, who may have subsequently recovered. They just, it wasn't their time, right? So we're not throwing them under the bus, but we're not, we, we need to start following the guidance of the spirits, what they're trying to get us to see. So suppose you're making your second, no, I don't want to do that. Never mind. So I'm going to go over to 97. It says, never avoid these responsibilities. So let me set that up. They were talking about offering people money, housing, things like that. And now they're going to tell us some guidance around giving and, and caring for our brethren so that we don't impede their recovery. Okay? So it says, never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. So where does my certainty come from? Deep down inside. The absolute certainty. So if I want to be sure I'm doing the right thing, I'm not going to get the opinions of the people at the group. I'm not going to get the opinions of a trusted advisor. I'm going to go inward and I'm going to get guidance and I'm going to move in it. It makes sense? Because by this time, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I'm moving in guidance and I'm following the, the power. Yeah? Okay. All right, so... Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. So how important it is it that I help others? How many of you have seen what happens to a building without a foundation? Or without a good foundation, anyway, right? A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You may have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. You guys know the story of the Good Samaritan? The one least likely to help is the one that actually was the good neighbor, right? He took the time to bandage the wounds, put him on his own animal, take him to the inn, pay his tab. So I'll be back in a few days. I'll settle the tab. We may have to do that every day if need be. Not walk past him and, you know, right? Okay. All right, so it may mean the loss of many nights' sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business, it may mean sharing your money in your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. How many of you recognize those things as somebody else suffered those for you? This is why you know it's the big amends. I'm now making right and acting in contrition of all the things that people had to do for me because of my antics. Why is it important? Because I have to make restitution for harms done, and that is the unending debt to serve my brother and sister. And I'm uniquely qualified to serve in this population. Okay? So your wife may sometimes say she's neglected. A drunk may, <laughs> a drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he's violent. Sometimes you'll have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. Another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally you'll have to meet such conditions. So they gave us a new employer in step three, and now they've given us the job description. Does that make sense? If you keep close to him and perform his work right, well, how do I know what his work is? Well, they just told you. Endless trips to jails, asylums, hospitals. Your phone's going to ring in the middle of the night. You're going to have dinner plans. Someone's going to call you and say, I need you. I'm down here in the zone, and I'm scared, and I don't know what to do. Okay, I'm not going to dinner. I've got to go get Barney. He's down there in the zone. <laughs> that's, that's what we do. And you know why we do it? Because we've not gone, and we, went, we were shitty dinner partners. Because we knew what it was like to be down there in the zone scared. So it's better I just go do what I'm uniquely qualified to do, bitch, all the way there, and then thank God all the way home. <laughs> all right? My sponsor was an asshole. He told me those were the 12-step promises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in the zone. We... Dude, I really do know what it's like to be in the zone and scared. We, we, we seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our homes for a long time. It's not good for him. It sometimes creates serious complications in the family. I'm going to jump from there to 
98, last week we looked at growing in understanding and effectiveness, and I promised you by the 12th step we'd show you what we're growing in understanding and effectiveness of. So here we are in step 12, and they're saying on page 98, it's not the matter of giving that's in question. So we give to everyone who asks, but not necessarily what they ask. Right? So it's not the matter of giving that's in question, but when and how to give. And you're only going to know that from the Spirit. It's not going to come from someone's opinion of whether homeless people are less human somehow or some of the silliness we hear. I are a homeless person. And I are a business owner. I are a hopeless dope fiend. And I am a treatment professional. Because that's the power of restoration. That's what's available to us. So it says that often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance rather than upon God. So we don't deliver to them what they should be able to either go seek for themselves or that they already have and simply don't know. There's lots of examples I could give you, but, but you know, we, we have ways to help people without burdening their recovery, right? There's resources. Um, he clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. How many of you know that's not true? I mean, he said, I'm not, I can't stop while this is going on. I got to, it's just too stressful. And then eventually, that shit never quit going on, but economics forced to stop, or an arrest, or an overdose. So eventually, we're going to, it was explained to me, you know, get to God or get to God. Okay. Um, So nonsense, some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence upon God. Right? That's the drill, guys. The reality, the great reality, the provider, that's what we come to know. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anybody. How does one burn an idea into their consciousness? Better come with power. I better, better be speaking with power if I'm going to burn. How many of you have felt the, the burn of the fire of the Spirit when it's time to receive a message? It's a waker-upper, huh? The only condition is he trusts in God and clean house. And trust in God and clean house is the, the power within and we got to clean it out so you know, so that you can be informed. Power, peace, happiness, sense of direction flowing in and then awaken to it and go forth and be the hands and feet of the Almighty. And then you'll know. Okay. So I'm going to go from there to 100. First paragraph. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. How many of you, when you read that, are thinking of, I've always got to have a a new one in the steps? This is not a bad idea, but that's not what they're talking about. How many of you have noticed that you think differently than you used to, but sometimes you still think like you, but act better than you used to? So the new man's the one acting better even when you're thinking different. And if I'm going to walk consciously, then I'm going to walk consciously with the new man. So when I'm thinking, what an asshole, I'm going to say, how can I help you? (laughs) Because I've been empowered to be kinder than I feel like being. Right? If I'm walking consciously. And that's what they're trying to get us to see, to grow in that experience. Um, If you persist, remarkable things will happen. You know why I know that? Because they're going to go biblical on us. They're going to start talking about how signs and wonders follow us if we persist. Right? So when we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you'll presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. So we talked about that a week ago. Sean said it gets better right away. And I said, for me, it did not because it's situational. I came in through a homeless shelter. I, I was tore up from the floor up. 
Didn't look good, didn't smell good, didn't, nothing was right. And I was changed instantly, and I started cleaning up just a little at a time, but I couldn't afford much of a cleanup, so I still looked, I didn't smell as rough, but I still looked like I didn't afford much. And it was like that for me for a long time, but I instantly lived in a new and wonderful world. Because I just knew. I just knew that I was living in promise. And if you don't believe I was living in promise, look what you're sitting in. Because who, you know, this hopeless drunk partnered up with a lifer and a bunch of people gave us a bunch of money. Because, you know, what better idea than to put a bunch of ex We call them alumni, but... You don't believe in miracles, hang around here. Okay. So, um, one of you, let's see what we got to look at next. Okay, I'm going to go down to the bottom of that page. Assuming that you're spiritually fit, so how would you make an assumption you were spiritually fit? Yeah, are you fighting anything or anyone? Right, this is an idea of observing without judgment and walking and healing and doing whatever is indicated, right? So assuming that we're spiritually fit, can we do, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars. Our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. Dude, my friends did hide their bottles, and I got them anyway. That never worked. Who knows what I'm talking about? Pill bottles, booze bottles, whatever they hid, I found. That was what my amends list was all about. Um, we mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. Our experience shows us not necessarily so. So, look, if you're troubled, don't go. But they're talking about, we got to outgrow that, because if I don't outgrow it, I still have an alcoholic mind, and there's no, I have no safe space, right? So we meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. So I didn't make that up. So when people are freaking, we need to say, look, man, you need a step experience. That's, it, we, just, we need to help you encounter power. Um, so there's something the matter with his spiritual status. His only chance for sobriety would be someplace like the Greenland ice cap. And even there, an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin the whole thing. How many of you found substances in places where there weren't supposed to be substances? So we know that shit's true. We will find it if we still have that mindset. Ask any woman who's sent her husband distant places on the theory you would escape the alcohol pro problem. So, so I'm going to read what they say. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. Now, that's not to say that we won't put you in a safe environment for a short period of time, get you some tools, you know, take a look at your traumas, see if we can get you through a step experience and then send you out in the world. But what we're saying, if the best plan you got is don't pick up no matter what, and you belong here, that's not a good plan. Not because I said so, but because it's been proven for years, it's in this book, and everyone here that's ever tried that plan knows, not a good plan. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time. How many of you succeeded for a time? But he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. Any of you have that, that happen yet? We, we have tried these methods, these attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So our rule is to avoid a place where there is drinking, if, or not to avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. So it's just about getting honest with yourself. Do you have a legitimate reason to be there or not? And if you don't, don't go. And if you do, go, right? That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain ordinary whoopee parties. I've never been to a whoopee party that I'm aware of. But drinking does complicate. I'm not sure what a whoopee party is. 
and I may have been to one, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that uncommon that I would not remember. Um, to a person who has had the experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. Right? If you're spiritually fit, you can go wherever you got to go to do whatever you got to do. Check with the spirit and go or don't go. You'll note that we made an important qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social, business, or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? If you can answer these questions satisfactorily, you need to have no apprehension. Notice how they're talking to you about talking to the power in you and making your decisions. Not, don't, don't go talking to other people. That's fellowship stuff. To your own self be true. Get the guidance from the Spirit. Sometimes you'll be called in the Spirit to go places. Everyone will tell you, that's crazy, dude. Don't go. But you've got to follow the Spirit. Okay, so... But be sure you're on solid spiritual ground before you start and what your motive is in going, in going is thoroughly good. Do not think of what you'll get out of the occasion. Think of what you can bring to it. If you're shaky, you'd better work with another alcoholic instead. And I'm going to get down in the middle of that page, a little further down. It says, your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So wherever that place is, that others may fear to go, empowered by the Spirit, you're going to be fine. And this is what they say here. Never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. 12th Avenue <laughs> May not be the most sordid, but it's one of them, right? It's on the Big Ten. Um, keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. I'd suggest to you, if you're going to claim a promise from AA, claim that one. Keep on the firing line. We need some soldiers in the front lines fighting with the fists of their mind, not the fists of the flesh. And let's, let's go reclaim the people lost in addiction because no one's better at it than us. See you next week. <laughs>